Hey guys, Lou Perez here with the Lou Perez Podcast. You may recognize me from my work with We The Internet TV or Greg and Lou. Just so you know, this is completely independent of those projects. And uh, I need your help and your support. So if you want to support me, you can go to locals.com and join the Lou Perez community over there. Uh, for this next episode, uh, I had a great time talking with Brendan O'Neill from Spiked. Uh, we talked about all of the assholes we've encountered during, uh, during COVID. And uh, we chatted uh, quite a bit about the film Cuties on Netflix. Um, so if you guys are interested in hearing what we have to say about it, well, here it is. Hey guys, welcome to the Lou Perez podcast. I'm Lou Perez and I'm joined by my friend Brendan O'Neill of Spiked Magazine and of the Brendan O'Neill podcast. So um, I stole the idea for the name for my uh, podcast from Brendan, you know, figured keep it simple. Um, so uh, Brendan, thank you so much for, um, for joining me here. I'm in the States and you're in England and um, you know, you had to take the tube to get home. So maybe you can tell me about how is life in London right now? Um, are you guys locked down? Uh, what's it, what's going on? Life in London is weird. It's we're kind of coming out of lockdown. So we're trying to get things back to normal. We had a pretty severe lockdown for two or three months. Uh, everything was closed. I mean, you could walk through the center of London and not see a single person which is, uh, the, the last time I saw that was in the zombie movie 28 Days Later, where they had to film the central London scenes at four in the morning because every other time London is full of people. So it was like 4 a.m. in 28 Days Later. The streets were deserted, nothing was open. It was actually really creepy and weird. Um, so we had a severe lockdown. We're trying to come out of it because if we don't come out of it, our economy is going to completely tank. Uh, life will, uh, people will struggle, there will be a deep, deep recession. So I think the government recognises that we need to come out of this now. But we're still in a bit of a twilight zone between lockdown and normality. And people are still behaving a bit strangely. We don't have all our rights back. Uh, there's still the Coronavirus Act, which was passed by Parliament a few months ago, which basically takes away some of our most fundamental liberties, including the freedom of association and the right to protest test. So it's not great. It's not good. We are, however, staggering back to normality, I hope. Yeah. And um, I'm here in, in Brooklyn. And what I find so odd is, you know, at the beginning of this thing, um, I was definitely in a state of like paranoia because I had no, I had no idea what, what this thing was. And it didn't seem like anybody else really knew. And my wife was pregnant. So we were like, we need to be just in our, we need to be basically be in our own little cubicle or a bubble. Um, and then, you know, months and months pass and we're so far out from the beginning of this thing that I would think people would have educated themselves on the science and what are reasonable precautions to, ta uh, to take. When I step outside, I see kids as young as like three years old with masks on. And it's very and it's really troubling. They're they're playing, and and also it doesn't seem to there doesn't seem to be any consistency because some of the kids have masks on, but they're playing with kids who don't have masks on. Then mom and dad are drinking a coffee without the mask, obviously, because you can't drink there. 
Um, and, and you get these looks and stuff because we're, we walk around without, uh, you know, without masks because it's fresh air and, and, and we need that. Um, and actually I, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a piece uh, for Spike magazine called the real mask holes. Um, and in the United States, you see like a bunch of videos of quote unquote mask holes who are, uh, people who refuse to wear masks. And it often takes place in like a Costco or a big, uh, a big store like that. But the mask holes that I've encountered have all been people wearing masks. Um, they've all been people yelling at you because you don't have a mask on. Um, and yeah, I don't know when, I don't know what things are going to look like um, a few months from now. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing that worries me too. You know, everyone's talking about the new normal and I find right. that such a terrifying Orwellian phrase. You know, firstly, I always think to myself, well, who's decided this is the new normal? I don't remember voting for this. I don't remember having a public consultation. I don't remember any genuine public democratic discussion about it. It's just something that's going to be foisted on us by officialdom, which thinks that it knows exactly how we have to stay safe and exactly how everyone should behave. So whenever I hear the phrase new normal, I get a shiver down my spine because I just think this is this smells like the imposition of an authoritarian society by people who presume that they know better than the rest of us. I think it's deeply chilling. The masks thing, I think, is a fascinating snapshot of what's going on at the moment. I mean, firstly, if if people in Brooklyn are making, you know, three and four year old kids wear masks, that's really terrible because the advice, even from the World Health Organization, is that very young children should not wear masks. It's not good for them. It's uh, it, it can be quite dangerous because they're three years old and they don't know what they're doing. Um, so I've seen similar here. I've seen a few very young kids in London wearing masks and I always find it a bit creepy. But the um, the mask thing, I think, it really demonstrates the way in which the whole COVID thing has quite quickly become a political phenomenon as well as simply being a health crisis. I mean, everyone, pretty much everyone agrees, apart from a few kind of conspiracy theorists, everyone agrees it's a health crisis, it's a, it's a real virus, it poses a challenge to our societies. I think it's a manageable challenge. I think the, the depth and, and extent of the challenge has been exaggerated by the politics of fear, but I do think it's a challenge and one that we have to take quite seriously. But I think um, what's happened over the past few months is that it's been turned from a health problem into a political issue. And, and the masks thing really sums that up because what we have now are people who make a really big deal of wearing a mask. You know, wearing a mask is now very often how you show that you are a good person. You know, it's like an extension of virtue signaling. And so I agree with you that the real mask holes are the people who wear their mask religiously without ever asking any questions about how beneficial it is, while hectoring everyone else and pointing their um, camera phones at everyone else and shaming people, publicly shaming people who aren't wearing masks. And it's become this, um, you know, wearing a mask apparently makes you a good person, gives you the right to lecture everyone else. And, and if, if anyone doesn't wear a mask, they're instantly looked upon as questionable, you know, probably a bit of a redneck. They probably watch too much Fox News. Or in the UK, they're probably you know, Brexit voters, idiots, stupid people. And I've done a few debates here, a few media debates here about masks. And even though I wear a mask on the tube, because you're not allowed to get on the tube without a mask, even though I do that, people will still 
brand you dangerous and psychotic, even if you ask questions about masks. So the speed with which this whole thing became a culture war issue and got entirely bound up with virtue signaling and, you know, that culture of demonstrating how better you are than everyone else. That's one of the things that really worries me, because I think once you add that kind of political momentum to COVID-19 and to the lockdown, you just make these things drag on more and more for longer than is necessary. And I think the more we politicise COVID, the more it's going to drag on in this kind of slightly authoritarian nightmare. Yeah, and I think the interpersonal um, uh, responses too. You know, when I'm walking down the street, if I don't have my mask on and, and I'm about to pass someone who does have a mask on, I feel weird about locking eyes with them. I feel, I feel like it either uh, it's almost like I don't want to be on a different team and I'm not trying to, but I feel like you think that I'm on a different team. Yeah. And I don't care yeah. about you. And one of the, one of the things that, that I've noticed when I go to the park and stuff like that, and there aren't a lot of people around and getting to talk to strangers, you can tell how isolated people have become with this because um, I, I, there's a, a woman who walks her, uh, her uh, poodle uh, in the park and I go there with my son and we stopped the other day and, and we were chatting and she brought up every single subject under the sun within like a, like a five minute conversation. She was like, I want to talk about, she's like uh, talking about politics and Trump. And she's like, look, I, I don't like them, but, uh, but there are good Republicans and what's going on with all this racism stuff. And, and I'm trying to be a good person and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the me too movement. She, she went through like a list of every <laughs> single hot button issue that you can find. And it's like, wow, this is someone who it seems like they've been isolated They've been alone and they haven't been able to get this out or to get this out at least to somebody who would listen. I might disagree with her on a bunch of stuff, but I'm actually there to listen. And um, I, I don't know if, the, if there's some hope there where it's sort of, I hope more and more people just start talking to each other. Mm. Um, and it's funny because, uh, you know, I, I see the very young children wearing masks and their parents wearing masks. The best responses I've come across have been from elderly people people in their seventies, even people in their eighties where they're like, Oh, this is all bullshit. You know, they're like, they're like, I lived through polio, you know, polio was <laughs> taking out kids, you know, left and right. It's like, we're going to get, you're going to be fine. You're going to get through this. You got to enjoy your life and you got to, you got to do that. Um, and I think there is, there is uh, wisdom there. And I hope that more and more people start, you know, uh, actually living their lives instead of just, uh, you know, just being in hiding from all this stuff. Yeah. But I completely agree with that. And I think, um, firstly, the idea that you can hide away from a virus is just wrong. You know, you can't. I mean, you can lock yourself in your house for three months, which is pretty much what we had to do in the UK with our lockdown. But the virus is still out there. And when people go out and about and go back to work and go back to the pub, more people will get infected. The virus doesn't disappear. You know, I really think we need a bit of realism and perspective in this whole discussion because... The truth of the matter is COVID-19 has now has now been added to the family of human diseases, to the family of human viruses. That's a shame. That's a bad thing. Lots of bad things has happened uh, as a consequence of that over the past few months. Lots of people have died. But that is reality. And it's, it's a manageable 
problem. You know, this is not um, a, a lethal virus for the vast majority of people. Uh, it, it doesn't have a high kill rate. Um, in people under 40, it's very often completely asymptomatic or you might get a mild cold-like or flu-like symptoms. I had COVID-19 for... Um, two or three weeks. I had a slightly unpleasant version. It was, you know, high fever, constant coughing, um, loss of smell and taste, which is absolutely awful. It, it's That for me was the most dreadful symptom because eating became this completely um, pleasureless activity. Um, you know, so I, and then I donated plasma and blood to the National Health Service because that's a good thing to do if you're if you've recovered from COVID and so you, you go through these experiences and what you realise is that me for me anyway as for the vast majority of people it's a pain in the neck it's unpleasant sometimes um, it's like having a really bad flu uh, although I know it isn't the same as flu as everyone keeps telling us and then you recover from it and you go back to normal life and. The idea that you should lock down the whole of society or shut down economic life or you put everyone under house arrest in response to a virus that most people don't have a particularly bad um, experience with, that strikes me as completely psychotic. And I think it, it, it's, it's that whole culture, the whole lockdown culture, the whole authoritarian culture, I don't think it was informed by the truth about COVID-19, which is that it's a pretty nasty virus, but a manageable one. Really, it was informed by the pre-existing politics of fear and the pre-existing uh, tendency towards authoritarianism and, and the pre-existing precautionary principle. You know, all these things predate COVID-19, these, these trends, these cultures, this risk aversion, this fear that we have this very cavalier attitude we have towards fundamental liberties. I mean, those kinds of issues have been growing in Anglo-American society for a long period of time. And I think COVID-19 really exploded all of that stuff and gave rise to one of the most deranged authoritarian experiments in peacetime. Um, in my view, you know, people. whenever I say things like this, people say, oh, you just think, the, the virus should run riot and kill loads of old people. You don't care about old people. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think we should have had targeted measures. Uh, I, Britain and also, I think, New York did it completely the wrong way round. They locked down the whole of society, including healthy young people, and they failed to lock down older people, especially vulnerable people, in care homes. Mm -hmm. So in both the UK and in New York State, um, there was a terrible situation in care homes where the, where the virus kind of just went through care homes and killed loads of people. Uh, there was this failure on the part of officialdom to secure old people's homes, which would have been a very sensible thing to do. We knew very early on that this disease was bad for old people, while allowing everyone else to um, operate freely, to carry on going to work, to carry on socialising. So that failure, I would put that failure down to the politics of fear. I really think that shows how dangerous the politics of fear is, because when governments are in the grip of the politics of fear, they can no longer see sense, they, they can no longer see reason, and we ended up in a situation where they put everyone under house arrest 
and forgot about care homes and elderly people's homes because that was just an afterthought. And so they really screwed up. And so my advice in the future is don't approach these things with a fearful, illiberal, authoritarian outlook. Approach them with a reasoned, scientifically informed, liberal outlook. And I think society would do better as a consequence. Yeah, and I, I think too, you know, going back to the idea of the how it's been politicized as well, you know, I came across, there was um, an article, I just read the headline, it was something like uh, uh, 60% of restaurants on Yelp have been, are either about to close or, or, or have closed. And they blame that on the coronavirus. And it's mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, wait, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. The coronavirus wasn't writing one star reviews of these <laughs> restaurants, you know, it was the government response to this coronavirus. And it's it's really troubling as um, someone who's in New York um, to see things like uh, our governor uh, Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, being held up as this hero. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Under his watch, you had all these unfortunate deaths from from these elderly people, and this the amount of people I see coming to his defense. Uh, what I want to say say to them is like, you know how you. You know how you complain about people who will defend Donald Trump over anything? Well, this is an example of you doing yeah. the same thing, but for your guy. Yeah. And I think, I think it, it definitely becomes very troublesome where any kind of dissent or any kind of question that's asked is you, where, where you are you know, basically uh, told that, oh, well, you must be a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. You know, and, and with the protests as well, you know, we were... Uh, so much happens like from day to day where I'm like, where are we right now? But uh, during the, uh, during the lockdown, there were uh, protests happening in state capitals from, you know, uh, people on the right. And we were told that they were going to, uh, you know, lead to all of these deaths from COVID. Then after that, we have black lives matter protests and we were told, well, the scourge, uh, uh, the scourge of racism is more important than is, is more detrimental to one's health than the COVID virus. And it's like, you're 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 picking and choosing which yeah. which side you you are giving uh, uh, car blanche to right in front of us yeah. right in front of us and and you want us to swallow it and, and to yeah. just go along with it it's you were saying that um, the uh, the coronavirus is uh, the legislation has had effect on how you're allowed to protest in in, in England how, how what effect has it had. Um, well, you're not allowed to protest and you're not you're not allowed to gather in large groups in public for any reason. And um, this week we brought in a new rule, which is the rule of six. And the rule of six means that you are not allowed to gather in groups larger than six people. So um, you can't protest. You can't have any form of political gathering. And we've had the exact same situation over here in relation to the extraordinary staggering double standards in relation to different forms of protest. So um, th there was a protest against the coronavirus authoritarianism a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, some of the people on the protest were a bit cranky. There were definitely some conspiracy theorists. And there were also people who are just very concerned about the new authoritarianism. The organiser of that protest was fined £10,000 for, which I guess is, I don't know, sixteen, seventeen thousand yeah. dollars for breaking the Coronavirus Act, for gathering in public in a time when you're not allowed to gather in public. Um, if you compare that with the Black Lives Matter protest, not only were no people fined for organising those, but officialdom 
essentially gave a green light to those protests. I mean, the police very often stood back and allowed protesters to tear down statues or to graffiti statues. Um, politicians were incredibly reluctant to criticize those protests. And in fact, many politicians in this country, especially uh, Labour politicians, our version of, of the Democrats, were taking the knee and publicly praising the protesters and saying, listen, there are some issues which are more important than protecting the public from COVID-19. So we had the same thing. And I think that all speaks to the politicization of this, this pandemic. So you have the politicization, as you say, you have it firstly in the way in which um, the, the coronavirus is blamed for things like restaurant closures and bar closures and economic decline and job losses. Uh, you know, I will, all, I will read articles saying... Um, you know, there's going to be a, a massive spike in poverty and hunger and disease in the third world as a result of coronavirus. And I want to say, no, it's not coronavirus. It's it's the shutting down of global economic life. It's the way in which Western economies in particular just put themselves on hold. I mean, every European country was shut down for a period of time. And that has a massive knock-on effect on trade across the world. And it has a particularly bad effect on developing countries. So we have to get it real. This is the, Coronavirus didn't do this. Coronavirus is not some sentient force which switched off our economies. Those were man-made decisions. Those were decisions taken by our governments which overreacted in response to a novel virus. Um, but then you also see the politicization of public health. So in the US, you had these public health officials who signed a letter explicitly saying um, it's fine to protest against Black Lives Matter because the disease of racism is, is worse than the disease of COVID. And then in that letter, they actually say, but this is not giving a green light to protests against lockdown. They are still unacceptable. They are still a threat to public health. And when public health becomes politicized like that, we're in really dodgy territory because what they're essentially saying is that some people have freedom and other people don't. So if you are a pretty woke, politically correct, probably upper middle class, white college kid, and you want to go around smashing things up for a few weeks because you're really, you think that the killing of George Floyd was horrific and the killing of George Floyd was horrific. That's fine. You can do that. We grant you the right to do that. But if you are a working class, middle America kind of person, uh, you know, I guess the coastal elites would refer to them as rednecks or, you know, Fox News addicts or whatever kind of uh, derogatory language they use. If you're one of those kinds of people and you want to go on a protest calling for the reinstatement of your right to work or the reinstatement of your right to protest, then that's unacceptable. And the public health lobby will condemn you as a threat to human life. So this double standard, I think, I mean, it's 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 not even the bad thing is not even that it's a double standard, but that it creates a it sets a precedent where you will have you will enjoy freedom if you have the right kind of views. Mm -hmm. But that freedom will be taken away from you if it's thought that you're the reason you're protesting is unacceptable. So the use of coronavirus to elevate certain sections of the political community and to denigrate other sections, I just thought was such a staggering misuse of public health language to the end of um, authoritarianism and, and political punishment. And I think there should have been a lot more pushback against that from people who are interested in liberty.
Yeah, that, that that's interesting too, because you know the United States is such a big country, and um, st- you know every state has se- seems to have responded to COVID nineteen in a different way, and every state seems to be responding to the protests in a different way, and every state seems to be responding to the riots and civil unrest in different ways. Um, well, at least where you know where the rioting and civil unrest is. I mean, you take a, a city like Portland that, you know, I don't know if they hit 90 days of consecutive riots or something like that, that, you know, allowing that kind of stuff to go to happen, you know, in your city. I don't know what that, I don't know what that says about those in power, you know, that they'll just allow that to, that to happen. I I know um, Donald Trump is, uh, he he signed a memo declaring, uh, I think, Portland, Seattle, Washington, D.C., and New York as anarchist jurisdictions, um, which is very weird for me because I'm in New York and I'm like, I don't, I don't remember seeing, you know, the anarchists on the, uh, on the ballot hmm. here. But, you know, I'm wondering what, you know, how much of, how much of, the, of the rioting is due to uh, people, t- you know, due to people who are uh, sincerely angry at the system and then, and also due to people who have been locked away for uh, for a long time and are finally getting out, and how much is you know due to um, uh, there was the the new book that came out, the uh, in defense of looting, uh, which how much of it is is down to hey, it's a good time, it's a good yeah. time to burn shit, and <laughs> and you have all this stuff just just coming together. Um, it's it's I think America is absolutely fascinating right now and disturbing in many ways um i i think the i think the disturbances and the rioting and the violence that we've seen over the past few weeks i think it's i think it is linked to the lockdown or or the shutdown which obviously varied from state to state but i think it, it, that created a kind of pressure a pressurized situation where people were Loads of people in the US lost their jobs. Loads of people are uncertain about their future. Many people were told to stay at home for long periods of time. I think that built up a lot of pressure and people were looking for a way out. And the same thing happened in the UK. In the UK, people were looking for a way out of lockdown, but there was no obvious way to do it. And it was increasingly unclear as to whether the government would ever stop the lockdown. We were told it would last for three weeks initially. It then went on for about three months. um, And it's still going on in various different ways. So uh, the way I see the Black Lives Matter explosion, I think it at least is partially a pushback against lockdown and it's partially people saying, you know, we've got to get out of this situation. And so kind of people burst out of their homes and said, you know, screw this, let's just get onto the streets. That part of it, I think, was was relatively positive. And I say that as someone who is highly critical of um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and But I think that side of it was relatively positive. People saying, you know, this has got to end and so this is how it will end. But it then very quickly spiralled out of control and became this crazy, violent, riotous behaviour, which even more strikingly 
some political leaders seemed utterly incapable of getting a handle on and utterly in- incapable of, even of condemning it. You know, we had some Democrats who were just very cagey about condemning this kind of behaviour. I thought it was very notable that Joe Biden and others only really started to condemn the behaviour when they thought it would be bad for them in terms of polling, when when they might look bad in the public arena if they didn't take a firm stance. But prior to that, they seemed, you know, pretty silent in the face of it. I think some of the American media, um, you know, I'm not necessarily a mainstream media basher. Uh, You know, I think the MSM does some good things and does some bad things. But I think in relation to the riots in recent weeks, I think the mainstream media has behaved terribly. They've been incredibly dishonest about the extent of the violence. They've been incredibly dishonest about the fact that it is violence. You know, there was that infamous CNN clip where he says, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) fiery protest, mostly peaceful, uh, which people deservedly ripped the piss out of. So... um, I think there are two striking things about what's going on in the US. Firstly, there's the violence itself. And secondly, there is the inability of the political class or the cultural elite or whatever we want to call them, the inability of those people to take it seriously or to do anything to stop it. My view is that I think the violence fundamentally, I think we're witnessing the militarization of identity politics. Um, And I think what's happening is that the kind of culture that has been growing on campuses for a long time, which is a culture of um, identitarianism, uh, neo-racial politics, the judgment of everyone by their identity, by their race, the punishment of people who dare to have the wrong opinion, um, the silencing of people, the harassment of people who have a different point of view. What's happened, I think, is that all of that stuff has has burst out of the, you know, fairly peaceful uh, area of the campus and is now on the streets. So when you see footage of Black Lives Matter supporters in Washington, D.C., screaming at people who are trying to eat at a, eat at a restaurant and, and chastising them for, for, for failing to raise their fist. That, to me, is, is identity politics becoming violent. When you see footage of white people um, on their knees uh, begging black people for forgiveness for the crimes of history, which we saw early on in the George Floyd protests, that, I think, is identity politics taken to another level. Um, when you see... Um, black activists on the street with uh, these kind of wealthy white kids with them and they're all engaging in this kind of orgy of self-loathing and talking about how awful America is and ripping down statues of Christopher Columbus and covering them in graffiti and rolling them into rivers and attacking statues of, I don't know, Jefferson and... and, um, Abraham Lincoln, you know, the Emancipation Monument, which people want to take down, that, I again, I think, is an extension of that kind of deranged campus culture, which is anti-American, anti-Enlightenment, anti-modernity. Uh, so I think what we're really witnessing, I mean, it's a very complex situation. There, there have been some legitimate protests, some riots, some violence. But I think if you take it all together, it does increasingly look like um, a militant version of the kind of backward illiberal politics that has been growing in certain sections of society for the past 
10 to 20 years. And that's the thing that worries me because I've always thought that at some point identity politics would spin out of control. Mm-hmm. And I think that might now be happening. Yeah, and so many of the examples that you that you mentioned, there's such a performative element to it. it it's uh, theatrical mm-hmm. uh, in, in a similar way where, you know, you wear a mask, you're a good person. Uh, if you join the mob, then, you know, you're, you're you're doing it for a just cause in a way where it's sort of like you don't any of your actions don't actually have to lead to anything positive. Yeah. Happening, yeah. You know, you, but you are taking part in the uh, in the fight. And uh, I, I've 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 had a, a tough time just trying to make sense of of the rioting because you have people on one hand who uh, who have said, I oh, know the violence is being carried out by white supremacists who have infiltrated and are, you know, breaking things and setting fires and all that. But also that violence is justified because of systemic racism and the problems here. And it's like, I, I, wait, can, are these two things true? Like, can they go, like, what, what is, you know, what is going on here? It seems like everybody just wants to have it, uh, have it their own way and, and have their, you know, be, have a way to, to justify it. And I wonder, you know, uh, about, you know, people being slow to condemn the looting and the rioting and stuff like that. I wonder if any of it comes down to like an, an honest belief that what is happening is, is justified. Um, and, you know, something I wanted to, to talk to you about um, is, you know, when are, you know, riots or mass uprisings or, or violence, you know, justified? Because I, I remember, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's been years yet, but like the yellow vests in, mm. um, in France, there were so many videos of them going at it with uh, French police. And a lot of the people say on my side, on the you know right of center side, were like, yeah, that's, you know, you're sticking it to them. But at, well, at the same time, condemning Antifa who were attacking, uh, attacking police. So I'm trying to make sense of like, hey, when, how does one justify what is legitimate uh, violence against the state or agents of the state? Um, so, yeah. It's it's a very good question, and um, I am by no means a pacifist. I think there are there have been many instances in history and modern times when protest has been entirely justified, and sometimes violent protest. I mean, you know, the bottom line is that many of our societies are as free as they are because people engaged in acts of violence. That's that's the truth of it. Um, in in the UK, we had the English Revolution, which gave rise to press freedom and parliamentary democracy. Um, You guys in America eventually copied us a couple (laughs) of centuries later with the American Revolution. And of course, there was the French Revolution, which was arguably the most violent of all. I don't have a problem with any of that. I think it was it was necessary. one of my favourite um, European holidays is is Bastille Day in France, where they celebrate the storming of Bastille Prison, which was is is largely considered to be the start of the French Revolution. So every year in France, they they, they have a national holiday to celebrate a mob breaking into a prison and letting all the prisoners out and stealing the weapons. So obviously we live in societies that recognise that it is sometimes legitimate for large groups of people to take that kind of action. Um, What's different, I think, about the stuff in the US at the moment, I mean, let's compare it to the yellow vests. I think that's a Mm -hmm. good comparison. I think there are two things that strike me as being very different. Firstly, some of the uh, riotous behaviour in the US has been so much more destructive 
than anything the gilets jaunes, uh, the yellow vests, than anything that they, they did. And far-reaching, I mean, too. You have people burning uh, used car lots. You yeah. have people uh, destroying restaurants, burning down, you know, Black-owned businesses and minority-owned yeah. businesses. Uh, yeah, I hear you on that. Yeah, so just a huge wave of destruction, which is going to really impact. I mean, the thing that really started to irritate me in the early days of those, um, the George Floyd protests and riots was you had the destruction of vast areas of, of black communities. And there were huge numbers of videos of, of black people saying, look, they've burnt down my shop, they've burnt down my housing complex, this is disastrous. And nothing irritates me more than when you have these kind of, you know, upper middle class white anarchists and Antifa people celebrating destructive behavior that will have a really detrimental impact on working class black communities. I think that is just really ugly stuff. And there was a lot of that early on. So I think one big difference is how much more destructive the events in the US have been. I mean, some of the scenes have been just extraordinary um, in comparison to the yellow vests who were never particularly destructive. And, and very often when the yellow vests attacked the police, it was because they got attacked by the police first. And I know that's the case in the US as well, but I think the US has been much more destructive. I think the second thing that's different is the response of establishment figures and media figures. I mean, the most amazing thing about the Yellow Vest protest, I cannot explain to you how little coverage there was in the British press. Uh, there was no coverage. I mean, it was just unbelievable. The BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, pretty much didn't cover it. These people were on the streets of France every weekend for a year. It was the most sustained protest and the largest protests in France since 1968. It was barely mentioned in the British media. And France is next door to us. It's, you know, right. 28 miles away. So it, 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 that was remarkable. And when establishment figures did comment on it, they said, you know, these are thugs. These are a bunch of fascists. These are awful, awful people. We shouldn't take them seriously. We need to get them off the streets. Whereas in relation to the US, it's been much more cagey, even quite supportive. People saying, well, what do you expect? America is a horrible racist country. Of course, people are going to rise up. So those two differences, I think, is, is worth thinking about. Firstly, just how destructive the events in the US have been, which I still don't think people are prepared to get a handle on just how destructive it's been. And secondly, why those events in the US were almost given a green light by figures of authority or certainly not condemned, whereas the um, yellow vest protests were thoroughly condemned or else just completely ignored. Well, um, since it, we like stepping on landmines, um, I think one of the, the, the most recent uh, landmine in, um, in culture has to be uh, in regards to Netflix's uh, movie Cuties. And um, you wrote a piece in spite, uh, in defense of cuties. And, you know, just right off the bat, um, this is such a topic where it's like you can't comment on it without somebody calling you a pedophile. Mm. It, it, it's, it's such a, uh, it, it's such a uh, I don't know, a nuclear, you know, sort of uh, um, subject um, where it's almost like... Um, I know so many people didn't even want to wade into this. The only reason why I watched this movie, Brendan, is because I saw that you wrote about it. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, we're going to, all right. I, 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 I enjoy Brendan's writing and, and his point of view. So let me, let me see what he has to say about it. So 
what, what do you make of um, the movie Cuties and also uh, the response to it? And we could get into Yeah. Well, I've had a, a completely insane response to my article. So I wrote this article in defense of Cuties, the headline. Um, I've just been inundated with emails, death threats, people calling me a pedophile and a pervert. People have have befriended me on Instagram just so they can abuse me and then they've unfriended me. So we're in that kind of territory. People are really putting effort into this and they're really making an effort to contact me and abuse me simply because I wrote this piece. But my, I had this weird thing where when I first read about QTs, um, when I saw the Netflix poster and I saw these articles describing the film, I, I thought to myself, oh my God, that sounds really gross. That sounds really exploitative. That does sound a bit paedophilic. Um, and I thought that's this is probably quite typical of modern culture because I actually am concerned about our highly sexualized culture. This is I, I actually have run-ins with libertarians sometimes on this point because they think I'm making a censorious point when I say I don't like our hypersexualized culture. I'm not making a censorious point. I'm just making an observation. I think a world saturated with pornography, a world in which um, you know the main form of music, i.e., hip hop, has become increasingly sexualized and brutalized. I don't think those are good things. I don't want them to be censored. I don't want them to be banned. But I think they can have a problematic impact on young people in particular. And, and I think, I think uh, if, if I could just jump in, and I think, I think part of it too is you, you have this hypersexualized uh, culture and it's, it's, you know, making its way all the way down to younger and younger people. Mm. And then you have this very gross dark side where people are now openly pedophilic or yeah. saying that, that, you know, trying to say that um, attraction to minors is a sexual orientation. Yeah. Therefore, I need to be accepted, um, and and that's a really scary thing too. And I, and I think with this movie coming out, it uh, it 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 exists in this world that that we currently live in, where it's the normalization of sexualization of of minors, and also sort of the attempt to normalize really gross behavior um, for adults with minors. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's absolutely true. And the, the culture of relativism has now gone so crazy that you can have a situation where people say, well, you know, paedophilia is just another sexual orientation when everyone knows it's it's a dangerous perversion and is not something that should be celebrated in any way whatsoever. Um, and you do have this trickle-down effect. You do have a situation where our hypersexualized culture and our, our, our pornographic culture is increasingly trickling down to very young kids who who dress often in inappropriate ways or who sing songs that they shouldn't be singing. You know, the, for me, the thought of 12 and 13-year-old girls singing um, WAP, you know, the Cardi B, Megan right. the Stallion song, that terrifies me. I think that's that's horrible. But so I've, I've had those opinions for a long time. I've written about this stuff. I've um, a, a few years ago, Pamela Anderson made a really interesting point where she said there's too much pornography. And I wrote a piece saying Pamela Anderson is right. And she wasn't calling for censorship. She mm. was just saying, listen, it's not good yeah. that kids can get porn it, in the palm of their hand the, on the, the telephone. There, there was a really great um, um, debate uh, at Oxford Union with um, a uh, well-known porn star, Lisa Ann, 
Um, and she's in a, she's been, I think in the porn business, probably, you know, 30 years or something like that, most of her uh, adult life. And she was making the argument that porn is not good for yeah. children, you know, for yeah. younger and younger people to, to be seeing it at that. And that steps need to be made to uh, stop children from being able to access this stuff. And, and, yeah. and um, you know, I, I would even say, um, you know, not only children, but young men, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and you know, uh, as, as, some, as, a, as, a, as a 38-year-old man who has consumed pornography, I could say that I probably, uh, it would have done me a lot of good to have consumed less porn- <laughs> pornography. Well, the, yeah, well, you know, in the old days, young boys, young men, they never saw pornography. I mean, one of your friends might have a pornographic magazine hidden away under a tree or something, and you might look at it once every six months and you wouldn't really know what you were looking at. But we didn't have access to that kind of imagery, constant imagery of people having all sorts of sex. You know, people can access that now anytime they want. I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. but so so I I had all these thoughts. I've had them for a long time. I've had run-ins with um, libertarians and others about these thoughts. So I thought I would watch Cuties, this French movie about four young girls, because I thought I I will hate this because it's going to be another aspect of this culture. But it's not. It's actually this is what I think is really striking about the movie. It's it's a critique of that culture, and it, it I think it dramatizes pretty well the terrible impact that that culture can have on young girls. It can make them do things they shouldn't be doing. It can make them behave in inappropriate ways. It can make them feel disorientated and humiliated. I think it captured that very well. Now, there is a question to be asked about whether the dance scenes in particular, where you have these 11-year-old girls twerking and patting each other on the bottom and and basically mimicking what they've seen in hip-hop videos, I think there's a legitimate discussion to be had in relation to culture how much of something do you have to show in order to condemn it do you have to show it all do you have to be quite so graphic can you not just hint at it that's a perfectly legitimate discussion my view is that it should be left up to the the artist him or herself to make that decision but in this film which which by the way is made by a french um a a woman of uh, of french and and senegalese descent who has um, who's only thirty five years old? She's a she's a very interesting, very new film director. She has seen girls in France behaving in this way. She's incredibly concerned about hypersexualization, and she made this film to alert people to the problem of hypersexualization. So she's actually on the side of a lot of the people who are criticizing her film, but. The problem is we live in a climate of instant condemnation. People get a thrill from condemning stuff. So a lot of, in in the US in particular, I mean, this film was shown in France and around Europe and it didn't cause much fuss at all. But there is something wrong with the US because as soon as it got to America, people went crazy. And a lot of the people condemning it I don't think they'd seen it. I think, I think, yeah, I think a lot of the condemnation definitely came from the initial poster that that was that was shared yeah. here, which was different um, than the one uh, in Europe. And and I, I think you bring up uh, a, a lot of a lot of good points. I actually having having watched it and having under um, having read you know a bunch of pieces of what the goal of the director was to point out and condemn this you know this particular element. For me, I think. Um, the point that point could have been better 
executed perhaps by a better director or even with a better script. So when I was, wa- when I was watching it, what I found was all the scenes that, that uh, disturbed people, in particular disturbed adults, disturbed me. And, but I didn't find, and, and this is probably just from, you know, you know, artistic or aesthetic, you know, view, I didn't find the rest of the movie was sort of enough to um, make up for the disturbing yeah. factors um, for me. And th- th- there, there was a, and we might be getting into, into the weeds, but if anybody has seen the, the pictures, there's some, some things that I pointed out there, there, there are definitely touching scenes in the, uh, uh, in the movie. And I don't mean it touching with, you know, girls being, being touched. I mean like that. Um, there's a scene where Amy, who is uh, the, uh, the protagonist, her father is taking another wife, which apparently is, is something that um, uh, Muslim men in, in, Seneg- uh, in Senegalese culture uh, are, uh, do. She's in her mother's bedroom and she hides under the bed and her mother comes in. Mm. And the scene is from the point of view of Amy being under the bed. And we hear the mother weeping, and I believe we hear the mother hitting herself, right? Yeah. So, so what that does for me, for me is it sets up certain rules of the filming where if, the, uh, if, if we're in Amy's point of view, there's only so much that we could know about, about what's happening. And there's a scene later on where Amy first kind of like meets the crew and they want her to film them dancing. So we have her point of view of her holding the, um, the phone while filming them. But then there's the, you know, sort of eye of God, um, you know, third person uh, uh, point of view of the camera that does some unnecessary mm. uh, push-ins on, 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 the, on the buttocks and stuff like that. And I felt like, and I felt like not, not enough attention was, was paid to, okay, what are the rules of the camera here? What are the rules of, uh, are, we, are we seeing from Amy's point of view or are we seeing from the, you know, uh, this is the way uh, girls are over-sexualized uh, point yeah. of view. And, but the thing is, I, w- I wouldn't be able to have that, um, that response had I not watched the movie, yeah. you know? And, and I think something that you, you, know, that, that you pointed out in, in your piece is how many people jumped on this without having seen, uh, without having seen the movie. Um, and I'm not saying that any, everybody has to be, you know, you know, forced to, to, to watch this, but I think that there, there's a quite a bit, there's a quite a bit of, of conversation that at least is being, um, that's being had because this movie, uh, this movie exists. If there's, you know, yeah. something good to come out of it. Yeah, I think the thing is, I, I I agree with you. The film has flaws. Um, I think one of those flaws could be that the filming of the dance scenes is sometimes uh, they go on too long. They they hone in too much on certain body parts. I actually think some of that stuff was probably unnecessary. I understand why the director did it. I think she wants to shock people. I think part of the film is uh, old fashioned shock factor and I think she wanted people to say oh god that's terrible as part of her mission I guess she seems to have a mission to raise people's awareness about this problem of hypersexualized kids so I understand why that happened it made me deeply uncomfortable in my piece I said you know these scenes are shocking Um, but the thing is what irritated me about the um, controversy is that the film was just written off as 
as child porn. You know, Ted Cruz wanted the Department of Justice to um, investigate Netflix for distributing child pornography. It's not child pornography, right? It, it might be a difficult film to watch. It might be shocking. It's obviously a, about the themes of sexualized children, but it is not child pornography. And to call it child pornography is, I think, hysterical and also undermines the seriousness of child pornography. I mean, I hate the phrase child pornography because it's not possible for children to make pornography mm-hmm. because they are not it's consenting abuse. adults. Yeah. They're, they're just rape films that are made yeah. by perverts who deserve to be locked up for a very long period of time. But I think the thing is, it's a film worthy of consideration. Some people will like it. Some people will hate it. Some people will be so shocked by it, they will switch it off. But it is worthy of consideration. And so this, as with all clamoring for censorship, it's always driven by this view that we should just block this thing out, forget about it, and don't even think about it, don't even engage with it. That's always wrong. This is, this is, a, this is a serious film. It has some flaws. It's interesting, and I think it's worth talking about. And I, I think one one of the things uh, you know you want. I think it was sort of you know from both sides. It was it was sort of uh, people who had condemned it without seeing it, and people who were supporting it without seeing it. You know, it was sort of like going by the um, you know the synopsis or or, or something yeah. like that. And I, I heard people. There were a lot of what about arguments that were being thrown around, like, oh, did you say this about? Taxi driver? Did you say this about kids? Did you say this about uh, about Brooke Shields posing, you know, for this stuff? And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think uh, I, I, I remember being, uh, I think, in my teens, watching the movie Kids and being disturbed by what was happening in the movie Kids, um, you know, uh, and uh, Taxi Driver as well. You know, looking back and being like, wow, it's really messed up when you think about, you know, jo- Jodie Foster being in that um, in that situation, but. I think it also, uh, it, you know, it's quite possible that the people who are saying like, oh, well, what about this? Could also be very, uh, you know, very disgusted by those very pieces that you're saying like, well, if you didn't like this or um, or, or that. Yeah. Well, it's it, it, one of the things I, I kept thinking of, of Little Miss Sunshine, because oh, I love the film Little Miss Sunshine. And, and that last scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, yeah. that last scene, which is very comical. Because, yeah. I, because I remember there was like this buildup, like, you know, uh, it, if it was a traditional Hollywood film, uh, it would be a buildup to like, oh, this very, you know, sort of homely, dorky kind of girl. Yeah. Uh, she gets her moment on stage and she shines bright like, yeah. a, like a star, like a, like a diamond. And we yeah. don't get that uh, at right. all. And that was a great right. reversal. Uh, from yeah. that. It's been a while since I've seen it, but but yeah, it, your thoughts on it's, it? I mean, it's a brilliant film. It is, it's hilarious and it is, uh, and that scene is uh, satirical and very funny, but it is a, it's a very young girl dancing in a provocative way and everyone is quite shocked. Now, obviously that's played for laughs and, and whereas Cuties, the, the dancing, the girls at least take the dancing very, very seriously and it's, it's, and it's more pro- provocative. But I do think there's a legitimate question to be asked, not necessarily what about this, what about that? That's never particularly helpful, but there is a discussion to be asked about, you know, where do we draw the line in terms of what film directors are allowed to depict? Now, we can all agree that it's impossible for children to consent to sexual acts. All normal people agree with that. So any depiction of that, any engagement with that is a profoundly immoral criminal offence that should be punished. But, you know, there are numerous films in history in which children have 
played um, victims of war or they've um, played victims of scary monsters in haunted houses or they you know the, the children are often in films doing things that it's not good for a normal kid to do um so it does raise all sorts of questions about whether there should be limitations to what film directors can show my view is so long as they are not actually exploiting people so long as they are in and the the director of cuties um, engaged with the kids, the four girls' parents thoroughly. They had a child psychologist on set. They um, talked to the children at length, and apparently the child psychologist is still talking to them just to make sure they can cope with the fame and any attention they might get. Those sound like pretty good measures to me. So the idea that this is an exploitative film and that it is made by paedophiles for paedophiles, I just think that's a really bad response. And it, it actually demonstrates that... It, and this is the point I made that probably got the most pushback. I think it shows that there are snowflakes on the right wing of politics just as much as there are on the left wing of politics. And um, censorship is not merely the property of the left, even though the left is often at the forefront of calling for censorship now. There are still those um, censorious forces on the right wing of politics too. My argument to both sides would be, listen... Freedom of um, speech is always preferable to censorship and you should engage with art rather than trying to censor or destroy it. Yeah, I think the, well, a, a couple of places I, I would just push back uh, a little bit is that um, I have been seeing uh, quite a few um, criticisms from people on the left um, against uh, uh, against this, this movie. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been, see- I've been seeing that. But the other thing I would push back on is just sort of like, you know, the parents of these children, it's like, you know, Hollywood is notorious for, you know, parents using their children as a way of, you know, making money or, you know, uh, ex- exploitation in, you know, in one in, in some way or another. There's a documentary that Alex Winter uh, put out uh, called Showbiz Kids. Um, and, you know, some of the stories in there are just of child actors who, you know, grew up and Hollywood is sort of done with them. And then you have other stories of like, you know, real, uh, real exploitation uh, there. So, you know, when I, when I hear about that, I I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's something where um, I think there's a lot of, a lot of introspection here that, that, that needs to be done. And, and, uh, or or it's making me do a lot of introspection. Like some of my favorite shows, um, the show, the cartoon Big Mouth uh, has to do with, pubescent uh, cartoon characters who are uh, at the the whim of um, hormone monsters. And there's a lot of sex jokes and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm thinking like, oh man, it's a little weird that they're like, you know, 12 <laughs> and 13 years old and I'm laughing at these jokes. Or one of my favorite novels, Lolita uh, by uh, Nabokov. Um, but although uh, I, I, in grad school, I wrote a, a paper called the, uh, how the book was the final violation of um, Dolores Hayes, so the, uh, the the character of Lolita, but you know it's 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 one of those things. I I, I at the very least, I wish um, there would be. I, I wish I would see more conversation about this rather than just yeah. outright. Well, you know, you must be a pedophile if you found anything good uh, in this film. Because, like, I don't know any pedophiles, but I could imagine that a pedophile probably will find anything with kids. Yeah, in it. it's like there, there's nothing that you could. I, I can't get into that head. I can't get into yeah. that mindset. Um, well, that's right. You know, uh, paedophiles are 
weird as hell, right? They are perverts. They're very odd people. And in some cases, they're very dangerous people. They will find all sorts of things thrilling, no doubt. And and that's a fact. And as you say, how, how is it possible to get into that kind of mindset? For most of us, it's not even possible to think like that. But I, I, I agree with you that this the the thing that really irritated me about the pushback against the movie was was simply that unwillingness to engage with it now people can like it and they can condemn it and i'm open to the suggestion as i say in my piece i'm completely open to the suggestion that it goes too far that it has an exploitative tendency even though i think the the, the message of the film is a good one uh, that's all good that's all that's all stuff that people should talk about. But this response people have to culture or ideas where they just say, shut it down, that is never, ever helpful. We're, there's a similar thing in the UK at the moment. Um, J.K. Rowling... I was going to ask you about um, that, yeah. Yeah, so J.K. Rowling is, has become this notorious figure among woke activists because she is trans-skeptical. She's skeptical about some aspects of transgenderism. She thinks biological sex is a reality. She doesn't think that biological males should be allowed in female prisons or changing rooms or sporting teams. Um, and for having these views, she is just hounded and harassed and demonized every single day. I mean, it is absolutely, completely out of control. And so she has a new novel coming out, one of the novels that she writes under the name Robert Galbraith. She writes detective novels under that name. And she has a new one coming out. And apparently, I haven't read it yet. No one's read it yet because it's not been published. But apparently the backstory is uh, in this novel is about a man who dresses as a woman in order to murder women and people are saying this is transphobic and there's been discussion about boycotting the book some people have talked about burning it people have said that she is a disgrace to humankind and she shouldn't be allowed to do this kind of thing so again you have this preemptive judgment this preemptive rage which is not based on any serious engagement with the novel these people have not read it, but it's just this kind of knee-jerk reaction which says, burn it, shut it down, we can't engage with this. And the the thing that I think is important to remind people of is the right of artists and writers and filmmakers to investigate and write about anything that they want. And, and that is such a core part of artistic freedom. This notion that we have some authority to tell writers what they can and cannot explore uh, or what kind of characters they can write. You know, apparently white novelists shouldn't be writing about black characters and male novelists shouldn't be writing about, have, you know, female lead characters. This constant um, woke imposition on writers and artists telling them the correct message they must express, like the Oscars. The Oscars will now give best, from 2024, will only give the best picture award to films that ad adhere to certain identitarian quotas. These external impositions on the artistic process, I think are incredibly damaging and incredibly illiberal. Yeah, and I, and I think, um you know, J.K. Rowling's uh, reputation or what it or what it's become, I don't think she could write anything without those, you know, uh, those activists or whatever you want to call them finding fault with it. You yeah. know, it's uh, and, and from the, you know, the brief description you gave, I'm like, oh, so I guess Alfred Hitchcock's psycho is going to be is, <laughs> yeah. is going is to have to go. And, um, you know, it's uh, 
yeah, it's it's one of those really weird, weird things because I, I am seeing videos on on social media of people burning her books, yeah. and um, you know, it, it's very funny that people have to point out, you know, some very bad people used to burn books. Yeah, that's right, and uh, and all that. Um, so uh, yeah, I've uh, I think I've kept you long. I've kept you up. <laughs> uh, you're five hours ahead on the the other side of, of the uh, Atlantic. Um, one, one thing I'll say for anybody who um, you know hasn't uh, read your work or uh, listened to your podcast, um, you are definitely a go-to uh, for me when it comes to uh, you know wanting. I, I, I want to know what, what Brendan O'Neill thinks about anything that's happening. So, uh, and also I want to recommend the Brendan O'Neill podcast as well, especially your episode with Glenn Lowry. It was fantastic. Mm. Uh, so you did a great job. Um, uh, any. Any last words? <laughs> Any last words? Any last words? Stay safe. <laughs> Stand up for freedom. Um, don't riot. Those are, those are my tips for your listeners. Sounds good to me. <laughs>